hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever rushed into a supermarket, you know, grabbed some vegetables, maybe some meat, went home, threw it all together, then moved on to like the 10 other things you do? Like every other night? But what happens if you actually stopped to think about how all that food got there or why you made the choices you made? Well, today's episode is all about taking the time to explore our deep connection with food. This episode originally aired in November of 2016. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So, how's everyone doing this week? Should we just eat? Well, we're very good on roots, so we can do potatoes and root crops and carrots and hmm. rhubarb, the salad crops, the beetroots and the onions and the leeks and all manner of things. This is Pam Warhurst, by the way. I'm a mum that comes from Todmorden, which is a small town in West Yorkshire. Todmorden? Todmorden is in the north of England. T-O-D-M-O-R-D-E-N. And it turns out it's one of the best places to be... We're great on soft fruit. Just a little bit hungry. So we're great on raspberries and black currants and white currants and loganberries and strawberries and all sorts of other crops, herbs and uh, kale and you name it. Beans, we do a load of beans, uh, edible flowers and all sorts of things. We're pretty good for apples. Um, and pears. We can even grow melons and uh, aubergines. So, yeah, there's, there's no shortage of great things. All that stuff grows in cold, grey and rainy Todmorden. And when we say in Todmorden, well... You walk down the middle of the town, um, you come along a canal, there's food growing on either side all the time to share. Hmm. It's public food to share. You walk to our police station and there's uh, maize growing in the front of there's our police station. Corn in and front of the station, wow. Absolutely, oh. absolutely, in raised beds. In private gardens, people are growing a heck of a lot in front of our college. We've got it at the railway station. We've got it in the park. We've got it along grass verges. We've surrounded our health centre with edibles. So if, if I'm walking through, through Todd Morton and I just like... I don't know, see like a bell pepper growing and just pick it off and start eating it. Nobody's going to say, hey, what are you doing? That's my bell pepper. No, of course they're not. Hmm. No, they're not. But the really interesting thing is it's, it's, it, it helps throw back some attitudes about individuals' behavior. Because as I say, we've got them at the railway station and all over the place. And we've got big signs that say, food to share. Wow. If you want to pick rocket or you want to pick tomatoes or you want to pick a pepper or whatever's there, it's yours to pick. And the truth is, nobody picks everything. Hmm. They pick enough, and that's it. Todd Morton has been like this for a decade or so, ever since Pam started a movement there to bring the community together around food. And that is how her movement, Incredible Edible, was born. The idea for it came to her on a train ride one afternoon when she was coming back from an environmental conference. I had no intentions of doing anything different on that day. I just sat in the audience and listened. And it just suddenly struck me. Why don't I just go home and start to do things differently? I got on a train and I just made up Incredible Edible. Hmm. And it was a really simple model, really simple. Um, it was just, let's imagine in wherever we live, in our borough, our neighbourhood, our town, our village, whatever, it works at any scale. We planted edible landscapes everywhere that we could. You just could like empty lots and just start planting stuff. That just plant, yeah. plant food. Right. Um, and then we've got pictures up that show people what's growing there. Sometimes we asked permission. More often than not, we might not. So, so if you just walk through Todd Morton in the summertime, you're, you're going to just see fruits and vegetables growing everywhere. Yeah, you absolutely are. But, you know, this isn't, I often say, this isn't Kew Gardens, you know. Yeah. It's not the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. <laughs> But we do our flipping best. Here's how Pam explained it on the TED stage. Now, none of this is rocket science. It certainly is not clever and it's not original. 
but it is joined up and it is inclusive. This is not a movement for those people that are going to sort themselves out anyway. This is a movement for everyone. We have a motto, if you eat, you're in. <laughs> across income, across culture. Is it replicable? Yeah. It most certainly is replicable. More than 30 towns in England now. Whichever way they want to do it, they're of their own volition, they're trying to make their own lives differently. And worldwide, we've got communities across America and Japan. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, what can you say? America and Japan and New Zealand. People, after the earthquake in New Zealand, visited us in order to incorporate some of this public spiritedness around local growing into the heart of Christchurch. We've even invented a new form of tourism. It's called vegetable tourism. <laughs> and believe it or not, people come from all over the world to poke around in our raised beds, even when there's not much growing. <laughs> but it starts a conversation. And you know, we're not doing it because we're bored. <laughs> we're doing it because we want to start a revolution. We try to answer this simple question, can you find a unifying language that cuts across age and income and culture that will help people themselves find a new way of living? See spaces around them differently, think about the resource they use differently, interact differently. And the answer would appear to be yes, and the language would appear to be food. Most of us just go to the supermarket, pick up a plastic bag of lettuce or a shrink-wrapped styrofoam tray of meat and get on home to make dinner. But we don't always think about how that food got there or how certain forces shaped the choices we make in the supermarket. So today on the show, ideas about how we connect with food, why we eat certain things and not others, and what the future of food may look or rather taste like. One thing Pam Warhurst showed in Todd Morton was how food could spark a change in every part of people's lives. Plant food, tell people what's there, right. go on Facebook, ask them, you know, help themselves. And that starts to reshape the look of the town. And then the next bit, so that's the first step, this next bit is, let's show people how to cook, let's show people how to grow, let's show people what's in season. And then let's talk to some of our older citizens who know how to do all that, but nobody's bothering asking them. Because if you grow up seeing food all over the place and start to connect with it, and if you know what to do with it, you are more likely to think about, if you can, supporting your local markets, your local farmers, your local you know, food businesses, rather than, without thinking and not meaning any harm, nip into the supermarket and buying something in a plastic bag that's flown all over the world. But I'm curious, because, like, to be able to do this in Todd Morton, I mean, the, the north of England does not have, like, the, the greatest farmland in the world, right? Well, it's mixed. No, it's, it's very marginal. It's, it's absolutely marginal. But we just talk about food to get people talking, you know, because... Actually, there'll be decreasing amounts of land in many parts of the world that we can grow our food on, but we still need to feed ourselves. Hmm. So we need to think about, can we grow on rooftops? Well, of course we can. Can we grow up the sides of buildings? Well, of course we can. And what I think it's, that's happened over the last nine years is people have suddenly opened their eyes to space and seen their environments in a completely different way and thought, hey, I could grow food on that. And it's fantastic. So even in the north of England... We can change the way we live by thinking about where we grow things, how we grow things, and how we share things. I'm totally moving to Todd Morton in the summer. <laughs> yeah, well, it's great. Pat Moorhurst, that movement she started in Todd Morton and now in towns all around the world is called Incredible Edible. You can learn more about it in Pam's full TED Talk. That's at TED.com. Okay, so fruits and vegetables in every corner in Todd Morton, that's real food, right? But the problem is that in most modern supermarkets, especially in America, that is not what we eat. You know, it's, it sort of depends how you define things, but I would say a minimum of 40% of the, of the stuff in American supermarkets wouldn't really qualify as food by the dictionary definition. Wait, 40% wouldn't qualify as food? Well, if you think of food, food the, the definition of food is 
something that sustains and nourishes. And, yeah. the, and the definition of nourishment is something that um, increases your health. So if something is not increasing your health but making you ill, it doesn't really meet the dictionary definition of food. This is food writer and cookbook author Mark Bittman. His most famous cookbook, actually one of the best-selling of all time, is simply called How to Cook Everything. Do people hug you in airports? <laughs> it's happened. It's happened. Not, not often, but yeah, it's happened. Anyway, Mark says that most of what we eat today isn't real food, but it wasn't always like that. Here's Mark Bittman on the TED stage. A hundred years ago, guess what? Everyone was a locavore. Every family had a cook, usually a mom, and those moms bought and prepared food. It was like your romantic vision of Europe. There was no snack food, and until the 20s, until Clarence Birdseye came along, there was no frozen food. Margarine didn't exist. In fact, when margarine was invented, several states passed laws declaring that it had to be dyed pink, so we'd all know that it was a fake. There were no restaurant chains. Eating ethnic was unheard of unless you were ethnic. Back in those days, there was no philosophy of food. You just ate. You didn't claim to be anything. Fats, carbs, proteins, they weren't bad or good. They were food. You ate food. Hardly anything contained more than one ingredient because it was an ingredient. The cornflake hadn't been invented. The Pop-Tart, the Pringle, Cheese Whiz, none of that stuff. Goldfish swam. <laughs> and again, everyone ate local. In New York, an orange was a common Christmas present because it came all the way from Florida. From the 30s on, road systems expanded, trucks took the place of railroads, fresh food began to travel more, oranges became common in New York. The South and West became agricultural hubs, and in other parts of the country, suburbs took over farmland. The effects of this are well known, they're everywhere. And the death of family farms is part of this puzzle, as is almost everything, from the demise of the real community to the challenge of finding a good tomato, even in summer. Eventually, California produced too much food to ship fresh, so it became critical to market canned and frozen foods. Thus arrived convenience. It was sold to proto-feminist housewives as a way to cut down on housework, but it cut down on the variety of food we ate as well. Many of us, grew up never eating a fresh vegetable. I, for one, and I'm not kidding, didn't eat real spinach or broccoli till I was 19. Who needed it, though? Meat was everywhere. What could be easier, more filling, or healthier for your family than broiling a steak? But by then, cattle were already raised unnaturally. Rather than spending their lives eating grass, for which their stomachs were designed, they were forced to eat soy and corn. They have trouble digesting those grains, of course, but that wasn't a problem for producers. Thanks to farm subsidies, a fine collaboration between agribusiness and Congress, soy, corn, and cattle became king, and chicken soon joined them on the throne. Mark Bittman, he'll be back in just a minute to explain why those foods have stayed so dominant for so long, and why our relationship to food could be on the brink of another big change. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First to Simply Safe, Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is self-installed wireless protection for your home. The company was founded by an electrical engineer whose friends were burglarized. They wanted home security, but most systems were too complicated and too expensive. So he built Simply Safe. Now they protect over 2 million people. And with Simply Safe, there are no annual contracts. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/radiohour. Thanks also to E-Trade. You want to invest your money, but there's one problem. You're not sure where to begin. Luckily, there's E-Trade. E-Trade simplifies investing without the financial jargon. Plus, their easy-to-use platform keeps you in the know about your money at all times. And if you need a hand at any point, E-Trade's investment professionals are standing by to help. For more information, visit etrade.com slash NPR. E-Trade Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Thank you. 
This week on Ask Me Another, we've got comedian Nick Kroll. He tells us about how his own experiences inspired his animated series, Big Mouth. I got pants in seventh grade. What does that mean? Uh, that's right, you're Canadian. So that would be, uh, I was trouser removed. This and so much more on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And today on the show, ideas about food, our connection to it, and its power to change so much about the way we live. I just bought a bottle of water, and on the label it said, gluten-free. Interesting. (laughs) Well, and it is. (laughs) This is food writer Mark Bittman. Truth in advertising. And Mark's been describing how, over the past 50 years, Corn and soy and wheat have become staples of the Western diet. One thing led to another. Corn and wheat and soy were easy to trade and easy to ship and easy to sell and easy to process. And the government, through direct and indirect subsidies, encouraged the growth of what we now call monocropping, which means really, really big fields of hundreds and hundreds of acres at a time planted in one crop in endless rows that are all cultivated and harvested mechanically. Um, But if you look in the late 19th, early 20th century, what was being grown in Iowa, Iowa was, I think, the country's biggest or second biggest producer of tomatoes. It was a huge producer of apples. I mean, this is a place where almost anything can be grown. And now I I was just in Iowa and Again, you can't believe the drive through miles and miles of corn and soybeans, and it's nothing else but corn and soybeans. Once you have that stuff, you have to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. So now, you know, the principal uses of those two crops are animal feed, biofuels, ethanol, and then corn and soy oils for frying and highly processed food made out of corn and soy. So we got the beginning of the heyday of value-added food, which contained as many soy and corn products as could be crammed into it. Home cooking remained the norm, but its quality was down the tubes. There were fewer meals with home-cooked breads, desserts, and soups, because all of them could be bought at any store. Not that they were any good, but they were there. Most moms cooked like mine. A piece of broiled meat, a quickly-made salad with bottled dressing, canned soup, canned fruit salad, maybe baked or mashed potatoes, or, perhaps the stupidest food ever, minute rice. For dessert, store-bought ice cream or cookies. My mom is not here, so I can say this now. This kind of cooking drove me to learn how to cook for myself. It wasn't all bad. By the 70s, forward-thinking people began to recognize the value of local ingredients. We tended gardens, we became interested in organic food, We knew or we were vegetarians. We weren't all hippies, either. Some of us were eating in good restaurants and learning how to cook well. Meanwhile, food production had become industrial. Industrial. Sadly, it was at this time that the family dinner was put in a coma, if not actually killed. By the 70s, home cooking was in such a sad state that the high fat and spice contents of foods like McNuggets and Hot Pockets, and we all have our favorites, actually, made this stuff more appealing than the bland things that people were serving at home. At the same time, masses of women were entering the workforce, and cooking simply wasn't important enough for men to share the burden. So now, you got your pizza nights, you got your microwave nights, you got your grazing nights, you got your fend-for-yourself nights, and so on. Leading the way, what's leading the way? Meat, junk food, cheese, the very stuff that will kill you. Yeah, and I mean, like what you were saying earlier, a lot of that has to do with with the fact that, like, today we ship food all over the world, right? You know, I think part of the problem is, and this can go back to cooking, because one of the problems with the way that we think about food right now is that we expect to have any food we want within minutes. If you want a mango, you're going to be able to get a mango. If you want a tomato, you're going to be able to get a tomato. Well... That is really not sustainable. So if we start thinking more seasonally, if we start cooking at home more with ingredients that are um, 
I think appropriate might be the right word. I mean, and I'm talking about more root vegetables in winter, beets and turnips and potatoes and so on. We're really eating much more in tune with what nature is offering us. And what nature is offering us is abundant. It's just not everything. So, I mean, you are an omnivore. You eat everything. But you you are a guy that a lot of people are going to look to and say, okay, well, you, you've written all these books. You are a food. You Like, I think of Mark Bittman and food. And so we want to know what we should kind of eat. Well, I do think, you know, I did this book called VB6, Vegan Before Six, a a few years ago. And um, basically it's a strategy to eat more plants by saying let's be very strictly vegan until dinner time and then do whatever. But, you know, I think that the rules are very, very simple. I think the rules are, one, define what food is, and often it's things that don't have labels. And, you know, a a head of broccoli doesn't need a label because it's a head of broccoli. We know what's in broccoli. Um, Define what food is, eat only that, and then within that category, eat as many plants as as you can stand to eat. That's it. Yeah. Within those rules. You eat what you like to eat, and you're going to have a good diet. Overconsumption of animals, and of course junk food, is the problem, along with our poultry consumption of plants. Now, there's no time to get into the benefits of eating plants here, but the evidence is that plants, and I want to make this clear, it's not the ingredients in plants, it's the plants. It's not the beta-carotene, it's the carrot. The evidence is very clear that plants promote health. This evidence is overwhelming at this point. You eat more plants, you eat less other stuff, you live longer. Not bad. But back to animals and junk food. We don't need either of them for health. Both have been marketed heavily, creating unnatural demand. We're not born craving Whoppers or Skittles. We have to take matters into our own hands, not only by advocating for a better diet for everyone, that's the hard part, but by improving our own. And that happens to be quite easy. It's a simple formula. Eat food. Eat real food. We can continue to enjoy our food, and we can continue to spin yarns about our favorite meals. We'll reduce not only calories, but our carbon footprint. We can make food more important, not less, and save ourselves by doing so. We have to choose that path. Thank you. Food writer Mark Bittman, you can see his entire talk at TED.com. Um, well, I know you have to leave, Mark, so thank you, uh, thank you. for doing this. And I, I tell you, the one, one of the things I really miss being paleo now for the next <laughs> who knows how long is a great recipe that you put out years ago. It was uh, pasta, I think spaghetti, sardines, breadcrumbs, red chilies. Oh, chilies. I was just talking about that, yeah. And it's great use of sardines, a great... How can you not eat pasta? What I the know, hell? I, well, you can get sweet potato pasta, which is, oh, which geez, is paleo-friendly. Come on. <laughs> I don't think pasta's going to kill you. Okay, so Mark Bittman is saying that, that like 40% of the stuff in grocery stores isn't real food. But, but if you had to estimate, what, what percentage of the stuff in grocery stores has added sugar? I don't have to estimate. It's 74%. What? 74% of all of the food in the store has been spiked with added sugar in some fashion. Is it hidden in plain sight? Oh, Absolutely. This is Dr. Robert Lustig. He's a pediatrician and a researcher at the University of California in San Francisco. So there are 56 names for sugar. I mean, did you know Pinocchio was sugar? No. You know, did you know, I mean, Demerara, that's even, yeah. that's almost famous now. Apple puree or evaporated cane juice. Yeah. That's my favorite because cane juice, oh, you know, it's juice. It's healthy, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. What happens when you evaporate cane juice? You get sugar. Robert Lustig studies sugar how it's managed to sneak its way into our diet and what it does to our bodies. We've replaced a real food diet with a processed food diet because it's cheaper, it's portable, it's convenient, kids like it, and it's addictive. And like any addictive substance, Robert says, sugar can be toxic, especially because so many of us eat too much of it. Here's Robert Lustig on the TED stage. Does sugar cause diabetes? Well, everyone says, well, yeah, but it's because of the calories. Sugar are empty calories. That's the mantra. It is not. This is absolutely not true. Sugar are toxic calories. So here's the way to look at this. 
the prevalence of diabetes worldwide as we speak right now. Who's worst? Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, Qatar, and Malaysia. Why then? No alcohol. But they got soft drinks like they're going out of style. Because <laughs> it's hot, and the water supply is a question mark, and no alcohol. <laughs> This is their reward. Studies from Europe show that if you consume one soda per day, your risk for diabetes goes up 29%, irrespective of the calories, irrespective of your weight, irrespective of anything else you eat. We've shown that for every 150 calories you, the world consumes, diabetes prevalence goes up a total of 0.1%, which is nothing. But if those 150 calories happen to be a can of soda, diabetes goes up 11-fold. And we're not consuming one can of soda, we're consuming two and a half. So 29% of all the diabetes in the world is due to sugar and sugar alone. This study actually satisfies both the scientific and legal criteria for proximate cause. You have to be able to show that something causes something else before you can do something about it. Well, we've proven it. We've shown it. So, so how toxic is it? Well, it causes disease. Number one, type 2 diabetes. Okay. Number two, heart disease. Okay. Number three, fatty liver disease, which is actually the biggest epidemic on the planet. And finally, tooth decay. So there are the four diseases where we have causation. There are two diseases where we have correlation. And so I don't talk about those much, but we have correlation for sugar and cancer and sugar and dementia. Wow. But we don't have causation yet but people are working on it. So, so fruit is fine, right? I mean, I eat, a, I eat lots of fruit every morning. So when you consume fruit, you're getting the fiber with it. And that's what's important is that that fiber not be pulverized, not be removed. And of course, that's what processed food is. You remove the fiber. So basically, you got to eat whole fruit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's say you didn't consume it as fruit. Let's say you consumed it as a soda. You can't metabolize it fast enough as it's coming in. And so the liver has a pop-off valve. It has a way of dealing with the excess. It turns that sugar into fat, liver fat. And we now know that it's that liver fat that drives all the chronic metabolic diseases that we have discussed except for the tooth decay. So what is the uh, what is a daily recommended limit for like a, an adult human for maximum amount of sugar we should be having every day? Well, depends on who you ask. The World Health Organization originally said six teaspoons of added sugar per day. Mm -hmm. Sounds reasonable. Well, it is actually reasonable. It's 25 grams. It's not, you know, an enormous amount, but it should be enough. But but they were lobbied so severely by the industry, so they actually ended up liberalizing it from six to 12 teaspoons of added sugar per day. Wow. Okay, so, so 12 teaspoons a day, that sounds like a, a lot. Like, I can't imagine, what, what is the average amount of sugar that an American or somebody in the West consumes every day? We are now at 19.5. So, you know, we are consuming about 50% more on average than our upper limit. Right. Now, there are some people who are consuming 30, 40, 50 teaspoons of added sugar per day. So. We've been sort of upping our sugar ante for many, many years. And of course, that's why type 2 diabetes first became a huge problem in the 1920s and heart disease in the 1930s. And then something happened in the 1980s. High fructose corn syrup happened. So is, is corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup worse than cane sugar? It's cheaper. But they're both equally bad? Yeah, they're both equally bad. But if it's cheaper, it's, then it's worse. And what that does is it also makes sugar cheaper because of the competition. Plus, that was exactly at the same time the low-fat directive came out of the USDA and the FDA. 1977, the first dietary goals for Americans said, eat less fat. Well, if you eat less fat, the food tastes like cardboard. The food industry knew that, so what'd they do? They pumped in the sugar. And now, high fructose corn syrup was cheaper, so they could do it. Wow. So let me give you an example of how this works. Okay, My favorite product of all time. Lucky Charms. Yeah. They're magically delicious. They are. Right? Why are there marshmallows in the box? Because they're delicious. Secondary. Why are there marshmallows in the box? Because uh, they're fun to eat. Because marshmallows are cheap. 
Huh. And oats are expensive. Huh. They take up more room in the box, and they can sell them for more. Wow. Great business strategy. So everyone says, education, educate the public, educate the populace. Tell them what's going on, except for one thing. Education hasn't worked for any other substance of abuse. Did Nancy Reagan's just say no work? <laughs> really? So... Where does that leave us? Everyone says, wait a second, don't tell me what to eat. Well, you know what? You've already been told what to eat. Where were you for the last 40 years as your food supply was being changed under your nose? Were you protesting then? Everyone says, get government out of my kitchen. You know, I don't want government in my kitchen either, unless there's somebody more dangerous already there. Okay? So the real question is, who the hell do you want in your kitchen? The government, who will take your freedom and your wallet, or the food industry, who's already taken your freedom, your wallet, and your health. That's your only choice. So, I mean, given that choice, what do we do? Ultimately, we have to figure out how the food industry can still make money selling real food. And the answer is, can they? Absolutely, they can, but not with the current business model. The food industry grosses $1 trillion a year in the United States. Of that, $450 billion of it is gross profit. Now, healthcare costs in America total $2.7 trillion a year, of which 75% is chronic metabolic disease, of which 75% of that could be preventable if we would do something about our diet. That's $1.4 trillion, triple what the food industry makes. We spend triple cleaning up the food industry's mess than they actually make. The bottom line is they're going to drive this bus till the wheels fall off. Hmm. The only answer is real food. We just have to figure out how to make it available and profitable for everyone. Uh, by the way, I'm assuming the sugar industry must really hate you? Sure. Yeah, they hate you. <laughs> in, yeah. in 10 words or less, yeah, they, they, they loathe me. Yeah. That's the way this works. My job is to provide the science so that the public can make its own informed decision and then... But not many people are saying what you're saying. I mean... Well, you know, look, there's a lot of noise in the system for obvious reasons. You've got all of these, this cacophony of people with their own vested interests... I have no vested interest other than taking care of children and seeing children get to adulthood to have a decent chance in life. That's my vested interest. And to be honest with you, it ought to be everybody's vested interest. So are you just like totally anti-sugar or do you like do you indulge, you know, just a, just a little bit? Of course. Now and again, the problem is I'm for dessert. Yeah. For dessert. Right. But if you're going to have breakfast cereal with orange juice and a Capri Sun and a granola bar, and that's all before three o'clock, you know, then you got a problem. Robert Lustig is a professor at the University of California in San Francisco. You can see his entire talk at ted.npr.org. We're back in just a minute. Stay with us on the show today. Ideas about how we connect to food. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to American Express. Lots of people have great ideas, but turning ideas into reality is tricky. Far fewer people do that, and it's even harder for them to do it alone. Whether those people need big strategic thinking or day-to-day -day business help, American Express believes support is part of the magic formula. After all, there's no I in we. No matter what your idea, big or small, you don't have to go it alone because American Express has your back. Don't live life without it. 
thanks also to Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes only the most important need-to-know information from thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and condenses this information down to short explainers that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. You can try it out for free by going to Blinkist.com slash Radio Hour. B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Radio Hour. I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, food. Why we eat what we eat and why our food is sometimes so much more than what we put on our plates. We all think we taste food in our mouths. And yet that's an illusion in the sense that uh, most of what you're tasting, the fruity, the floral, the meaty, the herbal, the burnt and the smoky are actually being decoded by our nostrils. But our brain is doing this wonderful job of ventriloquizing the, the information I get from my nose and making me believe as if it's coming from my mouth. This is Charles Spence, uh, head of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at Oxford University. What is the Crossmodal Research Laboratory? Um, so it's a lab here in the psychology department where we look at how the senses interact. And yes, our mouth and nose interact when we eat, but so do our mouth and our ears. We're doing experiments where we're feeding people uh, potato chips, and each time they bit into a potato chip, we would change the sound that they heard, sometimes making their own crunching sounds louder, sometimes quieter, sometimes boosting just certain frequency. And we're able to show that as soon as you change the sound, it changed the crispness, the crunchiness, the freshness, uh, and these other attributes there. Charles says how our food sounds, even looks, can change how it tastes. One might color a white wine artificially red with an odorless, tasteless food dye. And if done appropriately, you'll find the experts, the winemakers, will get fooled into smelling and even tasting what they think is a red wine. <laughs> All the aromas, you know, the, the tobacco and the dark chocolate and the stone fruits and so on, even though what they're actually tasting um, is the white. All of this, Charles says, feeds into a larger idea that how we experience our food is more than just about the ingredients. Here's Charles Spence on the TED stage. I'm here this morning to tell you about the perfect meal. We're all convinced we can taste the food. We can enjoy the flavors and aromas of the wine in the glass. But in fact, a lot of what's going on is, is created by the atmosphere in which we eat and drink. Uh, but the question is how to study it, how to measure it. And the tendency amongst the scientists, the, the neurogastronomists, is to stick people like you or I in a brain scanner, give them something to eat, something to drink, and see which parts of the brain light up. This is the, it's kind of your brain on flavour or neurogastronomy. But I think there's one problem here, which is that in fact you have to imagine yourself in one of these brain scanners, kind of lying on your back with your head clamped still, with a tube in your mouth, that periodically squirts in uh, some drink. You can't swallow it, because if you swallow it, your head will kind of jolt, and that will spoil the, the brain scan alignment. So it kind of tells you something, it tells you something useful, but it doesn't tell you about the perfect meal, because no one has had their perfect meal in one of those situations. What exactly defines a perfect meal? <laughs> um, so it's probably uh, different for each and every one of us. I mean, it can be something very, very simple. It can be you know, fish and chips by the seaside, or it could be you know, on your summer holidays by the beach somewhere. These often will stick in people's minds as, as the best meals. But what I guess has to be there is um, the mood you're in and the people you're with. So it's kind of the social aspects of dining. Uh, I think no one has ever had their perfect meal when they're fighting with their partner, say. Part of the thing about these kind of holiday meals that seem to stick with us and resonate and, and you can never quite capture when you get back home is that is your mood you probably relax because you're on holiday you're less stressed you're probably with your family and all these things come together to help enhance the experience and make it something sort of truly memorable you think about like um okay how many times have you um met a friend who's just come back from a, a holiday and they say oh you've got to try this amazing red wine that i tried in greece and then you try it and you were sort of thinking so that, that phenomenon has a name. I think we've all got our own versions of it. Yeah. Um, we've got the Provencal Rosé Paradox. Hmm. So it used to describe uh, Northern Europeans um, 
particularly who go for their summer holidays to the Mediterranean. And they're sitting somewhere uh, on the side of the sea, sipping that rosé wine, probably looking into their lover's eyes. The sun's out, they can hear the sounds of the sea, the smells of the salty sea, it's all there. And that tastes just like the best glass of wine you've ever had. Yeah. So great that you want to buy a bottle or a case and bring it back to share with your friends and show what good taste you have. And, and, and uh, you bring it back and then you're disappointed. And your friends are like, this is really cheap rosé. Yeah. And you say, what happened there? Is it something about when the bottles were in the airplane, it got a cold and that, you know, spoiled the wine? I think it's not about that at all. We never eat nor drink nowhere. We're always somewhere in a certain environment, in a certain state of mind. And our mental state and the environment both together kind of impact what we think we're tasting and how much we enjoy it. And we sort of, in a way, sort of misattribute, I suppose, some of the pleasure of the situation and put some of that pleasure into what we think about the food. In fact, says Charles, these ideas about how we experience food have actually convinced some chefs to try out certain methods of flavor enhancement. And these are methods that have nothing to do with the ingredients. If you're in a good mood, food tastes good. If you're in a bad mood, it never tastes good. It's this illusion about flavor. We think we're tasting the wine in the glass, but our brain cares about the everything else. The sound of the seagulls, the smell of the salty sea air, the warmth of the sun on our backs, all of that is playing into the experience. And top chefs are capturing that insight uh, in the dishes they serve. So Denny there, two Michelin star restaurant in Vervey in Switzerland. When you go to his two Michelin star restaurant, uh, white tablecloths, there's no cutlery on the table, there's no glasses, there are no plates, there's no nothing. There's just a plastic cow. And people wait, you say, well, he told us to be here at seven o'clock uh, and we're here and everyone's here in the restaurant now. I can see all the tables are full. Nothing will happen until somebody picks up, curiously, that plastic cow. And when they pick it up, he'll go, Mwah. it's a little cheap one euro cow. And he makes a mooing sound. And as soon as somebody, the first table does it, they'll be laughing. And then you can guarantee within a minute, you'll have a whole restaurant full of mooing cows laughing diners, and that is the moment when the first dish comes out because Denis has successfully, with nothing more than one euro a table, enhanced the mood, and he knows that will improve even the taste of a two Michelin star uh, restaurant. Wow. So, so like, from, from a neurological perspective, do we fully understand what's happening, like, why that's the case? <laughs> uh, no. So we don't know that it does happen, but it is the case. It's all... a kind of a classic example of just how important the environment is for what we taste. I work with a young chef called Joseph Youssef here in London, and he's been um, sending out questionnaires several weeks after people have been to his restaurant uh, to say, what do you remember? Yeah. And you say, well, what, what flavour was the soup? And people are convinced they can remember, but in fact, when you check what was actually on the menu, they're kind of constructing something. They remember the experience, what they felt about it, and their brain kind of fills in the rest about the details of what they think they thought they were eating. Are most chefs that you talk to, are they on board with, with your ideas? Do, do they think, yeah, it is, it is about the experience, he's right? Or, they, or do they say, no, this is totally absurd. It's all about the food and the taste of the food. Uh, of course, there are still some chefs who say, no, no, it is just what I was taught in culinary school. It is just the sourcing, the preparation, but nothing else. But you sort of say, okay, so um, in your restaurant, um, do you serve the food with near plastic cutlery? No, no, it's, it's silver, isn't it? And where is your restaurant exactly? Oh, it's in a country manor house looking out at nature. So they, they're saying all these things on the one hand, but clearly you can never sort of serve food just by itself. It's always served on something in a certain environment. And those kind of contextual factors are always there. They cannot be avoided. So certainly the, I think there are a growing number of the younger chefs who are now popping up, starting up their own venues, who, who are really, think, for the first time in history, saying... We don't need to just know about the ingredients and cooking preparation techniques. We really need to know about the mind of those that we're serving. Charles Spence wrote about his research on how we experience food in his latest book. It's called The Perfect Meal. You can see his entire talk at ted.npr.org. So let's get just a little bit more creative about what's on our plates, because that's what Marcel Dika does. Okay, my name is Marcel Dika. And you are in uh, Wageningen? Where is Wageningen? Wageningen. It's Wageningen. very difficult for you to pronounce. Yeah, Wageningen. I can't yeah. do that. Yeah. Where Wageningen is, that? is in the center of the Netherlands. And in the center of the Netherlands, about once a week, Marcel and his wife have what some might consider an unusual ingredient. 
with dinner. And it's uh, something that, that we put, for instance, over uh, a rice dish or um, in the vegetables or in the salad. So what do you buy? Like, which ones? Uh, we have four species that are for sale in the Netherlands. That is um, locusts, crickets, mealworms and buffalo worms. Yep. Bugs. Which, for the record, do not taste like chicken. Quite often they're a bit nutty. And do you buy them alive? No, we buy them uh, at this moment freeze-dried. You can bake them or you can fry them or you can cook them. Marcel Dika is an entomologist. He studies and eats bugs. And he's actually written a whole insect cookbook with dishes like... Pancakes with mealworms. And for lunch... A quiche with mealworms in it. And of course, dessert. Chocolate topped with uh, a locust. Okay, those dishes might be a little unusual, but eating insects actually isn't because a lot of people around the world do it every day. It's about 2 billion people on this planet, so that's about uh, 28% uh, or 30% that do that on a regular basis. Even if you're not eating whole crickets or caterpillars, you are still eating insects. You just don't always know it. Every one of us eats insects. It's impossible to... Do not eat insects. Even if we don't want to eat insects? Even if you don't want to eat insects. And I'll give you an example. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, please. Tomato ketchup. Now and then there will be one tomato that has a worm in it. And, well, not all of those will be spotted. And so a part of them will end up in the ketchup. Marcel says chocolate, peanut butter, noodles, pretty much any processed food has a small dose of insects. And in the not-too-distant future, he says that we all might need to eat bugs out of necessity. Marcel Dika explains why on the TED stage. The human population is growing very rapidly. It will grow to about 9 billion in 2050. How are we going to feed this world? We have a third more mouths to feed, but we need agricultural production increase of 70%. And that's especially because this world population is increasing not only in numbers, but we're also getting wealthier. And anyone that gets wealthier starts to eat more meat. And meat, in fact, is something that costs a lot of our agricultural production. Because at the moment, 70% of all our agricultural land is being used to produce livestock. That's not only the land where the livestock is walking and feeding, but it's also other areas where the feed is being produced and being transported. We can increase it a bit at the expense of rainforests. But there's a limitation very soon. And if you remember that we need to increase agricultural production by 70%, we're not going to make it that way. We could much better change from meat to insects. So you see insects not only as a a good alternative to meat, but as the future of food? Uh, Absolutely. Um, uh, Insects are an excellent alternative. Hmm because they need much less uh, land than producing regular livestock. And livestock is so inefficient because for one kilogram of beef that you will get on your plate, you need about 25 kilograms of feed. Insects are doing a much better job. You need only about 2.2 kilograms of feed for one kilogram of cricket uh, meat. So if we are going to be forced to produce food in a more efficient way, then switching from regular meat and livestock to insects is a very logical thing to do. Now there's a big if, of course, and it is if insects produce meat that is of good quality. Well, there have been all kinds of analyses, and in terms of protein, of fat, of vitamins, it's very good. In fact, it's comparable to anything that we eat as meat at the moment. And even in terms of calories, it's very good. One kilogram of grasshoppers has the same amount of calories as 10 hot dogs or six Big Macs. (laughs) So we have to get used to the idea of eating insects. And some might think, well, they're not yet available. Well, they are. There's entrepreneurs in the Netherlands that produce them. And maybe by 2020, you'll buy them just knowing that this is an insect that you're going to eat. So why not eat insects? You should try it yourself. A couple of years ago, we had 1,750 people all together on a square in Wageningen town and they ate insects at the same moment, and this was still big, big news. I think soon it will not be big news anymore when we all eat insects, because it's just a normal way of doing. 
Professor Dicker, I see one pretty significant problem with all this. What's the problem that you see? It's gross. They're disgusting. How could you eat an insect? Uh, yeah, that's that's the thing that comes to mind most often. And um, if you really take it very serious and you look at an insect, you take uh, a locust or a cricket and you take away the wings and the, the legs mm-hmm. and oh. then you put that next to uh, a nice shrimp. If you look at them, they're, they're basically the same. And even from a biological point of view, they're very close relatives. And so if you love to eat shrimp, then why would you not love to eat um, locusts, which in some countries even are called the, the, the sky shrimps? I mean, I so want to make this work in my life and in the lives of the people listening. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I can't even – I'm trying to be mindful and imagining – biting into a locust, and it's just, I can't get there. Well, then, uh, for you, at this stage, it might be an alternative to eat pasta in which the crickets have been ground and uh, they're uh, distributed into the pasta, and so you won't see anything, but you'll eat a fortified pasta with cricket meal. I understand that it takes uh, a while to to really get over this, but when the first sushi was being on the market uh, in the United States, eating raw fish was not something well uh, accepted. Now you can eat sushi anywhere. And so there's all kinds of foods that maybe initially might not have uh, the odds right, but still make it. So if, if actually, you know, let's say we can get over this sort of cultural aversion in the West to uh, eating lots of insects. And, and let's say we just ate so many insects that it really reduced our consumption of chicken and beef and pork and, you know, lamb. What would happen? I think we would have a world population that would be able to sustain everyone with animal proteins. And it would ideally be also so that we would eat less meat, but it would be good if we at least replaced part of it by new meats. And with this, I think what we would see is that our dinner table would be much more diverse. Mm -hmm. And I think you shouldn't look at it as how do we overcome this growth factor? No, how can we make life even more enjoyable by having a more variety of what we eat? Marcel Dika, he's the head of the Laboratory of Entomology at, let me try this, Wageningen University in the Netherlands. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. I dropped the beat. So I can talk about my favorite tastings The food that is the everlasting See, I'm not fasting, I'm gobbling Like a dog on turkey Beef jerky, slim gems I eat sometimes I like lemon and limes And if not that, I get the roti and the sour sauce Sit back, relax, listen to some hip-hop Gum drops and gummy bears tease my eyes A sight for sore ones and so up highs And other goodies that are filled with glue With pineapple roots Hey, thanks for listening to our show about food this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Camilo Garcon. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.